I invite you, encourage you to open up to Ruth chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, uh, please turn to the part of your bulletin that covers our sermon text today from the book of Ruth chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Ruth 3, 1, 1 through 18. We are in the midst of a small Christmas series through uh, the book of Ruth. It's four chapters. It is the uh, only book in the Old Testament named after a non-Jewish person, a non-Israelite. Ruth was a woman who was from, who was far from the people of Israel, and yet God in his grace and his mercy brought her into his people. So Ruth chapter 3, 1 through 18. I don't know how many of you have seen the 2012 uh, Oscar Award winner, Academy Award winner for Best Picture, uh, Argo. Argo, starring Ben Affleck. Uh, the story behind it, if you haven't seen it, is that there's a group of Americans. It's 1979. Uh, they are serving at an embassy in uh, Iran, and they uh, the Iranian Revolution begins, and these embassy workers uh, there in the embassy in Tehran, uh, they they find themselves hurriedly having to rush out of the embassy, hurriedly having to, uh, in, in a very real sense, run for their lives. And so they eventually hole up inside the uh, apartment of the Canadian ambassador to Iran, who shelters them and harbors them uh, for months on end, while uh, the Iranian forces uh, are starting to realize uh, over the course of these months that hey, there are Americans here in this country that we don't know where they are, and they're starting to figure out their identity. And so while they're starting to figure out the identity and the, the, the time of, uh, of uh, figuring out how uh, the, 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 the time that they're in this apartment and trying to figure out how they'll get out is starting to go longer and longer and longer. And the CIA back in America is working feverishly to try to figure out how they're going to get them out of the country. It's a fascinating movie. And yet, one of the funniest things about the movie, one of the funniest scenes from the movie, is as the CIA, as, as various personnel in the CIA are working uh, to form plans to get these Americans out of Iran, they continue to hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock until they come up with an idea. I'm not going to tell you the idea. Uh, I don't want to spoil the movie, although it is eight years old, and so there's got to be some kind of uh, rule there about when a movie can no longer be spoiled after so many years. But they, 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 they come up with a plan. And uh, after many other plans had already failed in the brainstorming phase, and they come up with this plan, and they're, they're presenting it to higher-ups in the CIA and higher-ups at the White House, and one of the guys starts asking a question, and they're looking at it, and they're saying, ah, that's just not a very good idea. And one of the higher-ups says, um, says something along the lines of, that's it's just a bad idea. And one of the CIA staffers who was working on it kind of, stands up in his seat or, or, or firms up in, in his posture and uh, proudly yet humbly and respectfully. Uh, I don't know if he meant the joke behind it or not, but he says, sir, it is our best bad idea. And they go forward with it. And I won't tell you how it ends. Have you ever been in a station in life, in a position in life where you were trying to figure out what you were due amongst a group of best bad ideas? Maybe you're between jobs and you're looking at situations where the opportunities before you or the lack of opportunities before you, it's not that you have one you really want and one that you really don't. It's that all of the ones before you are things that you find very unappealing. 
Maybe you're in a situation in a relationship or in a marriage even where the bright sunset, the right sunset that once stood before you has now seemed to be clouded out by, out by ominous clouds and you don't know what the future is for this relationship or marriage. Maybe your business has had a hard time over the last few months. Maybe your personal or family finances have been strained. And you're trying to make the budget work for months ahead and, and the numbers just don't seem to work. You feel like you've trimmed off everything you can possibly trim off. All the excess expenses, all the, all the you know, pleasures that you might treat yourself to, cutting out various forms of entertainment, not going to take the vacation this year, not going to eat out much, and yet the numbers still don't add up. So you try to add them up from another direction. Well, maybe if I start on this side and start with this budget, I, I, I've tried that before, right? You just think if you start adding from a different way, it'll work better, and it doesn't. And so you find yourself, wherever you find yourself, you find yourself looking at it, and you say, okay, what is my best bad idea? That's where Ruth and Naomi find themselves in chapter 3. Naomi has an idea for Ruth. Now, if you haven't been with us the first two weeks in Ruth 1 and Ruth 2, let me catch you up very briefly. Like I said previously, Ruth is a woman from Moab who she married into Naomi's family. She married Naomi's son. Naomi and her family moved to Moab. Well, Naomi's uh, husband and two sons, including Ruth's husband, all died. So Ruth is going back to Bethlehem. They had moved there because of a famine. The famine is over. Now they're moving back to Bethlehem. And Ruth is going with Naomi. In these first two chapters, Ruth has been a model of faith and of devotion to her mother-in-law. And more particularly, and more importantly, devotion to her mother-in-law's God. Naomi has been a woman whose her faith has understandably, with the loss of her husband, with natural disaster, with the loss of her two sons, Naomi is a woman who her faith has been teetering on the brink. We're starting to see glimpses of growth, though, in Naomi. And yet, Naomi and Ruth are still two single women in a world and in a time where they need provision, where they need a husband, where they need heritage, where they need children. It's not meaning any of it to sound sexist. It was just a reality of that time. And so there's a man that has come on the picture in Ruth 2 named Boaz, who is a business owner, and, but more importantly than that, he is a man of just upstanding, upright character, and we'll see some of that today. But Naomi is starting to think, it would be really good if something happened with Ruth and Boaz. This is the one I want my daughter-in-law to marry. And yet things just seem to be paused. What began with an awkward first date in the break room at work in chapter 2 now sees the harvest for which Ruth has been working for Boaz's company, the harvest is coming to a conclusion, and there's been no further developments between Ruth and Boaz. So chapter 2 ends with this pause of what's going to happen with Ruth and Boaz, and more particularly, what's going to happen for Ruth and Naomi? Will they be all right? Well, Naomi comes up with her best bad idea. Follow along as I read Ruth 3, 1 through 5. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? 
Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash yourself, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Let's pause there. Here's what Ruth 3 is going to show us. Valiant faith and unflinching character. Valiant faith and unflinching character are both critical to trusting God in uncertain times. Let me say that again. Valiant faith and unflinching character are both critical to trusting God in uncertain times. So as we just read in verses 1 through 5, we see Naomi's bold plan. Naomi's bold plan. And then we'll see Ruth's valiant faith and Boaz's unflinching character. But first, Naomi's bold plan. Like like I stated, Naomi's getting nervous. She looks at her daughter-in-law, Ruth, and says, all right, it's time for us to do something here about Boaz. He's dragging his feet. He wouldn't be the first man in in a possible relationship who was dragging his feet. But Naomi's seeing the harvest coming to a conclusion, not knowing what the future holds. Maybe rations are starting to get low. And she tells Ruth, Ruth, God loves you, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. So mother-in-law telling her, here's how we're going to do this. Now, the barley harvest was this harvest in Bethlehem. It lasted about six or seven weeks, and they're reaching the end of it. So they will have brought in all the crops that they have harvested. And what they're going to do is they're going to start what's called winnowing. And so they're going to take the harvest, and they're going to have these big pitchforks. And all the workers from the harvest, they're going to, like, Throw, use the pitchforks to throw the, the wheat, to throw everything and separate the chaff from the kernels, from the grain that they're going to take. And that's the stuff that they, uh, that, that, that will feed people. That's the stuff that'll make money for the business. That's the, that's the valuable stuff. So they're going to spend a night separating all of that. And that's kind of the conclusion of the harvest. It's going to be a celebration at the end of it. And so Naomi knows that there's going to be a celebration. So she tells Ruth, Hey, Ruth, Why don't you get yourself cleaned up, put on some makeup, put on your best outfit, and this is the night you are going to go make your move to Boaz. Boaz, who has been perhaps too busy with work, or perhaps Boaz, who knows that Ruth is a widow, thinks she's still mourning, thinks she's still grieving, and so he's saying, I don't want to move too fast. Maybe Ruth is out of his league. We're going to see she's noticeably younger than him. We don't know what Boaz's motivation is, but we know Naomi is ready for something to happen. So she tells Ruth it's time. Now these instructions she gives her in verse 3 and 4, uh, go to the threshing floor. I'm picking up in the middle of verse 3, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So they, they'd finish the harvest, they'd finish the threshing, the winnowing, and then they'd eat and drink to celebrate, and then they would sleep. Uh, you see verse 4, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Oftentimes those who were finishing the harvest late at night, they would sleep beside the the grain. They would sleep beside the all that they had harvested because they didn't want people to come steal it in the night. And so he would lay down and sleep, and it was at that point that Ruth was supposed to move in. So she says, go and cover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Now this is ambiguous, and the author of Ruth leaves it purposefully ambiguous, these instructions. 
Some construe this as telling her to act in a sexually suggestive manner. Others say they don't think that that's the case at all. I I lean towards the belief that Naomi is not telling Ruth to go act in a sexually suggestive manner, hoping to seduce Boaz and hoping something happens that would lead to marriage sooner or later in a forced manner. I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think that fits with the overall story of what's happening. That doesn't fit with the character of Ruth that we've seen going on here as far as her trusting God. But what we do see in Ruth 3 is that it shows us God's providential control of our lives should not result in resigned fatalism, but it actually should result in risk-taking faith. I'll say that again. God's providence in our lives is is something we see uh, throughout the book of Ruth where it seems like we see the actors on stage and yet we know things that the actors on stage don't yet know like you might see in a movie or like you might see in a play. And so we know that God is working. He's pulling strings. He's, he's, He's moving levers. He's doing all of these things that the actors can't see. And we know that's all God's providence. And so what we know is that Seeing that God is at work, even when we don't understand it, doesn't result in us sitting around and just trusting ourselves to some kind of fatalism, like whatever God will have happen will happen. But it results in us, or it ought to result in us, riding the wave of his providence towards the shore to which he is taking us. This just means that when our faith is lined up with God's purposes, that is the sweet spot for understanding his will for our lives. So you might ask the question, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, it's trusting God's purposes. You might say, okay, well, how do you get that from Ruth 3 and Naomi's instructions for Boaz? Well, some of her instructions and some of what they are banking on with Boaz, with him marrying Ruth, and we'll get into it in a little later in this passage, was was trusting in what God had designed, what God has orchestrated for uh, the people of Israel and how uh, 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 widows would be provided for and how the people of Israel would continue to, to, to grow and flourish and have heritage and lineage, even for those who were deceased. So in one sense, I think Naomi is saying, Ruth... The God that you have professed to trust, it is time that we trust him. It's time that I trust him. So let's see Ruth's valiant faith going on in verses 6 through 9. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, let's pause there. The picture is pretty self-explanatory. Boaz has had an enjoyable night, good food, good drink. He's laying down, he's going to sleep. And then he, in the cold of the night, they're outside. Uh, uh, in the cold of the night, he maybe rolls over and he realizes as he rolls over, he bumps into somebody who was there who wasn't previously there. This is one strange proposal by Ruth. There's no way around it. But what she's doing when she says, uh, I am Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. 
She is, she is calling out upon Boaz to have mercy upon her. She's calling out upon Boaz to show love to her, to provide for her, and saying, I am coming to you in need of mercy, in need of provision, in need of care. Now picture Ruth in, in like anticipation of this. She's putting on her makeup. She's getting dressed. She's maybe walking towards that area. And then she's kind of hanging out, waiting for Boaz to go to bed. She's watching them from afar, maybe hiding behind some shrubbery or trees or something. Have you ever been in that situation where you had a big conversation coming up? You had a big conversation, whether it was in the workplace or with a family member, and you had this, you had this, this conversation that you knew you needed to have, but you knew it could get really awkward or really bad really quickly. And so you're reciting it in your mind. You're saying, okay, if this person responds like this, I'll do this, I'll say this, and here's all my plans. And, and, and you're just nervous, right? It's hard to eat beforehand. It's hard to, you, you, you try to have lunch before the meeting, but you, you just don't have much of an appetite. Well, whatever that situation has been, I, it's probably never been as nerve-wracking as being a Moabite woman who's going to go essentially get in bed or lay beside an Israelite man and ask him to marry her. What is Ruth thinking? Her hope is in her God. And her hope is in the God that we worship. The God who has promised to care for His people. And who calls them to faith in Him. Now she says that Boaz, now to to understand this trust in God and trust in His purposes, this word she describes Boaz in in verse 9 is a redeemer. You may have heard the term before, a kinsman redeemer. Kin, family, okay, and then redeemer, somebody who rescues, somebody who, who, who gives of themselves in order to redeem or to bring somebody out from their despair or their agony or their suffering. In Old Testament Israelite times, a kinsman redeemer was a man who had the responsibility though not the legal obligation, to pursue the well-being of his extended family if they fell on hard times. This could be in financial senses, where a man might bail out his family who's fallen on hard times financially. Or in the sense where a woman goes to a man who is distant family and says, we married into this family and everything has gone south. Can you rescue me? Can you marry me? The kinsman redeemer was a man who was expected to or or, or who would hopefully accomplish a great work of sacrifice on behalf of his extended family and their great need. And so in one sense, Ruth is proposing to Boaz, but in another sense, she's trusting entirely in God and what he has laid out before and instructed in regards to kinsman redeemers and their responsibilities. She's jumped out of the airplane and Boaz is her parachute. You don't walk back from a midnight unexpected proposal. This is Ruth shooting her shot. This is a woman of desperation, trusting her God. One commentator I read made the point, you know, think about Ruth's online dating profile. It wasn't real appealing. Single, Moabite woman, widowed, childless, with mother-in-law, seeks well-to-do Bethlehem businessman to marry, and you must love my mother-in-law. You can understand a sense of desperation on on Naomi and Ruth's part. 
So what does this mean for us? When we talk about God's will and we talk about feeling as if we're in a pinch, when we talk about not knowing where to turn, does this mean that you should go find someone that you want to marry and then tell them, hey, it's God's will that you and I marry? Sorry, it's what it says. No. We look at this and we look at other Old Testament stories through the lens of the cross. Here's what I mean. The whole Old Testament is marching towards Christ. The whole Old Testament is marching towards the coming, the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. And so when we say when we say this, what we are saying is that Christ is our Redeemer. We aren't looking around for Boaz's. We already have Christ. We have the Redeemer that Boaz is just a shadow of. Our perfect Redeemer who does who has married us, his church, his bride, through shedding his blood and redeeming us. And so we trust in Christ as our protector. He is our shelter amidst the storms of this life, and he is the protector of our souls. He will not let us go astray. He will not let us be yanked out of his hand. He is our provider. He provides us food and sustenance and nourishment amidst life, even amidst when we feel as if life is in neutral and we can't get it into gear. But he is also our provider in a more powerful sense in that he nourishes and provides our faith. There's a misconception in our world today that faith is something that we muster within us when, in fact, the Bible presents us that faith in Christ is a gift to us. So maybe you might be in a position where you would say, I see these truths of Christianity and I see them intellectually, but I don't know that I believe them. I don't know how I go from that step to intellectual to actual belief. Pray that God would give you faith. It is a gift from him. And so the question that we ask ourselves is not, okay, who does this tell me to go marry? But the question we ask ourselves is, am I trusting in, is my faith in Christ as confident as faith, as Ruth's faith in God? Is our hope in our Redeemer on the level of which if he does not come through for us, we are done? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ is not resurrected, we as Christians are of all men most to be pitied. If Christianity was somehow proven entirely without shadow of a doubt false tomorrow, would you just shrug and walk away and say, well, that wasn't wasn't a big loss? Or would your life be in tatters? Because you would cast your all upon Christ. Are you changed by his word? Do you submit under the authority of his word as it changes you? Just do you submit under the authority and the rule and the, the plan of Christ in your life as you pray before him? As you humble your plans and humble your desires under the authority of Christ our King? As a church family, do we believe God's word? Do we believe in the power of prayer together? Do we believe in the the responsibility and the power of our responsibility to gather under his word week by week and worship and hear the preaching of his word? To open up his word together with one another, knowing that we need it not just to get by, but in order to, in fact, live. What a risky faith calls us to is a faith that goes beyond our comfort levels to find that Christ himself is our comfort. 
We've been doing many things in the life of our church, some of which are exhibited on the outside of our facility. You drive past our facility and the restoration and renovation work looks beautiful. But may I submit to you that far more beautiful than any building is a church that has a faith that is awe-inspiring. That it is in a God who doesn't just get, a, get us by, but a God who raises the dead. A God who gives life to the lifeless. A God who gives hope to the hopeless. So whether you're newer to Christianity or you're in stages of life between jobs or in college and you're trying to sort through things in life, there can come a time to you where you ask yourself, what is God's will for my life? And oftentimes, in fact, almost all the time, God will not say, okay, here's the plan. I'll give you a calendar. Here's what's going to happen this date. I'll give you the, the way it's going to go. Here's your resume I've typed up for you. Here's all of these things that I'm going to make happen for you. No, when we wonder what is God's will for my life, we find that his will is that we trust him. His will is that he can form us to trust him more and more and more. And so oftentimes his will and the purposes for which he is, or no, excuse me, the plans for which he has us are shrouded by fog. But the purposes for which he has us to grow us in our trust in him are abundantly clear. So how is our faith? Not only how is our faith, one example of faith is how we live in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the waiting. So let's see Boaz's unflinching character in verses 10 to 18. Feel the heaviness of the moment. Ruth has just said, "Uh, will you marry me, Boaz? As he rolled over and said, what are you doing here? But look at how Boaz responds in verses 10 to 11. He says, and may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This word kindness that Boaz references in verse 10, this kindness that she had done. It's a word that, that, that means this covenant-keeping, faithfulness, loving, sacrificing kindness. So the first kindness that, Bo, that, that Ruth had done was referenced back in chapter 2, her kindness in refusing to leave her mother-in-law, Naomi, saying she's going to stick with her through thick and thin. And now this kindness is even willing to pursue marriage to this man who can take care of both of them. If I can be honest, one of the big pains of this time of COVID is that relationships are just shriveled up, just zapped. Has it struck you, even that even though you are here today, this might be a good thing or a bad thing, you could have a conversation with 10 other people, hopefully in a distance manner, and you don't know what they're thinking because we can't tell facial expressions anymore with these masks on. I found myself having numerous conversations over the course of the last eight or nine months where I was looking at somebody and I said, okay, you smile. I didn't think this. I just, I didn't say this. I just thought, are you smiling? Are you frowning? It's hard to take facial cues. Far beyond that, we can't hug one another. It's careful as far as gathering together to talk, to sit down, to pray, to Check in with one another. 
COVID has forced some of the most difficult things when it comes to human nature, and that is forcing isolation, separation, distance. I feel as a pastor, it just puts a weight on me, puts a weight on our church. We have folks here today, or folks who are not here today, who are having to tune in via live stream for health reasons. This is not in the replanting a church playbook. Have a pandemic hit in year two. Have to spread out everybody. Have to wear masks. Have to be careful not to talk to one another too much. Have to limit gatherings outside of the church. And yet this doesn't thwart God's plans for his people. What it does is it gives us opportunities to trust him all the more. Not only in our faith in him, but in our pursuit of character that glorifies him. Now, Boaz is a fascinating figure. You read on in verse 12. He, in verse 11, he said, all right, Ruth, I'm with you. Let's do this. He says in verse 12, though, he throws a curveball her way. Now, it is true, I'm a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down. Until the morning. We have found a hole in Naomi's plan. There were other ones that thankfully were navigated. But we found a hole in Naomi's plan. She did not realize that there was a man technically, legally closer in relationship, closer in, this is probably isn't the right word, but priority that could say, I will marry Ruth. And so Boaz knows this and Boaz says, all right, we got to figure this out. We're going to have to trust God. What you see with Boaz is his willingness to do the right thing. His willingness to do the right thing even when it is not the comfortable thing. His willingness to do the right thing even when it is not the most advantageous thing as far as he sees his plans working out. Boaz is a man to behold. May God raise up more and more Boaz's You know, Boaz, this is a compelling aspect of Christianity. In the character of people who profess the name of Christ, they actually present, they actually magnify, they actually bring glory to Christ. They show people a love that is uncommon, that is foreign to a world that just simply reaches for yet cannot grasp the love of God. Now, you might find yourself feeling like, I can't reach it, I can't grasp it. For whatever reason, you may feel unworthy of this love of God. Well, if that's the case, I'd encourage you to consider Naomi and Ruth. If you feel as if the death of Christ, the cross of Christ, the work of Christ in bringing people to himself is beyond you. Look at Naomi, who turned her back on her God and even shook her fist at God and said, I am you have made me bitter. You have cursed me. Or look at Ruth, who was part of a people who were in very real senses, enemies of the people of God, who worshipped gods other than the one true God. And God has set his mercy upon Ruth. If you do not know know this God of Ruth and of Boaz, this God who is Christ, this God who has redeemed us and rescued us, and you feel as if you don't know him, 
because you are beyond the reach of his grace. One of the central themes of the book of Ruth is to say that nobody is beyond the reach of his grace, regardless of your past, regardless of your circumstances now, regardless of what boat you find yourself in, feeling as if there's nowhere to turn. Boaz shows us a God who is faithful to us and who does right and just towards us. May God raise up more and more Boazes in our midst to be witnesses, examples of the love of Christ. Husbands, do you seek to provide for your families? But not only do you seek to provide, but do you seek to meet the needs of your wife, of your children? Do you have areas in which you feel aggrieved that the bargain of marriage is not being held up appropriately? What's your attitude towards the extra baggage that came with your wife that you didn't anticipate? Or wives, what's the baggage that that came with your husband that you did not anticipate? And what is your attitude towards it? Christ calls us towards unflinching character. Character is not making ourselves look good. Character is caring for others in need of good. Boazes don't seek their own, but they seek to sacrifice for the sake of those in need. So Boaz throws this wrench into the plans, though, and says, hey, there's somebody greater than I. There's somebody closer in line. We're going to have to work things through him first. And so then in verse 14, he tells her, or 13, he says, let's wait till morning. Then we'll start resolution on this. And so Ruth lays back down at his feet. Sleeps till the morning, but arose before no one could recognize another. And Boaz said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He doesn't want the appearance of anything improper. And then he says to, to, to Ruth, bring out the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. It's no accident that Ruth keeps coming home with more food for Naomi. Naomi, who life originally marked by a famine, doesn't know what they will eat. End of chapter 2, Ruth comes home with food from Boaz. End of chapter 3, Ruth comes home with food from Boaz. Maybe you find yourself in that situation where you feel like there are nothing but bad ideas. Maybe the prayer that you need to make tonight, maybe the prayer that you need to have this week, maybe the prayer that you need to have over the course of the next month, six months, year, whatever, maybe the prayer you need to ask another brother or sister in the church family to be praying with you is that in the midst of what you perceive to be a famine, in the midst of what you perceive to be a disaster of a life situation, God would help you to see the mercy of his provision. Even when you don't see it in some places, It is there in the places in which he knows you need. Ask somebody to help you pray through that and ask them to help you to pray that he would give you the mercy to wait, the faith to trust when his will is not unfolding as you would desire. It's as if God, through Boaz's good character and generosity, is telling Naomi, I see you and you cannot outrun my loving kindness. And it's at this moment where Naomi says, this man, this man will see it through. Look, she says in verse 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. 
For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so we wait to be continued. Ruth 4 next week. You might very well feel like you were trying to figure out the best bad idea in your life. Life has a way of putting us in those situations. You may not be hiding, afraid of arrest in a foreign country. But you may feel as if you were imprisoned in your very home. In your very skin. In your very life, in your very job, in your very marriage, in your very relationship, in your work, whatever. Life has a way of putting us in those decisions, trying to make education decisions for the kids, trying to make health care decisions for aging spouses or parents. Life has a way of showing us that there is much that we don't know. But we do so with valiant faith and with unflinching character. And we know that our Redeemer, our Redeemer is working and He is good. And he is not hiding, but he is acting on your behalf and on mine, providentially working out his purposes for us. Let's trust him through our faith in him and through our character that brings glory to him. Let's pray. Christ, you are our redeemer. Christ, you are our hope. It is you we worship. It is you we praise. It is your word that we submit under. I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters. Help us all as your church. To trust you. And not just say that we trust you intellectually or verbally, but to trust you with our hearts. With faith that is willing to take you up on your your promises. The promises to see your people through. Your commands to us to make disciples. Your call to us to trust you no matter what may may come. And help us to be a people that trust you in our character. Being willing to do what is right, knowing that your good purposes cannot be thwarted, and knowing that your will for our lives is always obedience. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.